Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, Angry Planet listeners. It's Matthew. Uh, we don't have new episodes this week for you, much to our chagrin. We are going to play something here. It's an unlocked episode from 2020 about the use of sanctions as war. Uh, but let me explain. <laughs> Um, what happened this week, uh, you know, if you haven't been following the news, Russia invaded Ukraine on Thursday. We had episodes, um, one in the tank and one planned to release. The first one uh, after the invasion occurred, the guest and I um, had a heart to heart. It was not at his urging, but a, a kind of more of at mine that we de- we decided that perhaps the subject matter of the episode was inappropriate um, given the current circumstances, and so we decided to shelve it. Uh, the second episode we had planned, um, the the guest was unavailable uh, because of the instance this week. Um, Jason and I both have been run pretty ragged in our day jobs. Uh, as you know, I'm a, a staff writer at Vice Motherboard, um, and I'm kind of one of the guys that knows conflict uh, pretty well. Um, and so I've kind of gotten rolled up into more of like the vice news team proper and have been hitting uh, a lot of the news stories as they've been coming out and kind of doing the breaking news beat, which can be pretty exhausting. Um, and you know, I have friends and colleagues in Ukraine and uh, I've been watching all this very closely and being in being very state tuned into the news. Jason literally just started a new job as de- deputy editor at the week. Um, kind of a hell of a first week, uh, you know, for something like this to happen. And so we kind of come to this 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 weird point at the first time in our podcast history where we don't have anything for you right now because of unprecedented things in history. Um, so we apologize. Uh, we do have some things planned. Um, it's just been you know we're we're a show that doesn't do hot takes. It would be very easy for us to jump on a call for thirty minutes. And just kind of bullshit for half an hour about what we think's going on and make a prediction about what we think's going to happen and kind of, you know, regurgitate news stories to you. But that's what cable news is for. That's not why you come to Angry Planet. That's not what we do. We do cold takes. We do analysis. We want to let, you know, intelligent people come on and, and have weird and bizarre conversations and there just wasn't room for that for us this week. Like I said, we had to kill one of them and I hopefully maybe one day, several months from now, uh, probably won't re ever air what we recorded. Uh, but I will touch base back with the guest and we will record something else. Um, and I think when you hear that, you'll understand why we perhaps thought it was a bad idea to, uh, to float that particular episode. Um, you know, as I'm sitting here recording this, it's, it's 4 PM. On Friday, uh, I've actually been a little bit tuned out from the breaking news side of things for the past hour, kind of finishing up something I was writing on, uh, kind of a retrospective on the Javelin missile and why it's been so important for this war and why um, Ukrainians have kind of made uh, a saint, a Mary Magdalene figure that's holding one of these Javelin missiles 
you know, I've been writing about the Russian economy. I've been writing about the cyber war. I had other shows I had to do this week. It's been a little wild. Um, so we apologize. And what's coming down the pipe? Sunday, we're going to be talking to a gentleman uh, that's going to be kind of walking us through the U.S. intelligence, uh, the lead up to the war that had been coming in since November and how much of it ended up being uh, shockingly accurate as far as what's happened. Um, and then Jason has said that he's going to be able to get that out Sunday, so we will have that. And then on Tuesday night, we're talking to Mark Galliotti. If you're a fan of the show, you know that uh, he's been on quite a bit, and he's kind of one of our, our, our Russian translators. Um, he has a new book out that's kind of about the Russian way of war, and we're going to have him on to talk about the domestic situation in Russia I mean, this is one of those things where uh, another reason I didn't want to put anything out too quick this week is because I I listen to a lot of podcasts about international relations and about war and these kinds of things. And a lot of them uh, have face planted this week. I've watched them put things out that were completely invalidated within 12 hours. The turnaround time for this stuff just isn't enough. I think, and I think this is an inadequate medium for breaking news unless you have a big, powerful news organization behind you like the New York Times, say, to produce something like The Daily, which we just don't have. And so, I, again, I, I apologize, but we are working on it. We will get you some stuff. Um, I'm going to be working through the weekend on some things and be, be following all of this. Um, you know, follow me on Twitter at MJ Galt uh, to see kind of the latest on what I'm working at advice. Jason is JQ Fields on there. Uh, and we will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. But until then, here is an old premium episode from 2020 about the use of sanctions as a weapon of war. I uh, hope you enjoy this. Oh, that light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, that's China. And when they get out of the tunnel, China will eat them alive. This Russia-Chinese alliance? Yeah, Russia's the junior partner in any such alliance, and they know it. That's not a comfortable situation for them. There are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. One day... All of the facts in about 30 years' time will be published. When genocide has been carried out in this country almost with impunity, and when it is near to completion, people talk about intervention. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which this world has never seen before. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Peter. And I'm Matthew Galt. Once upon a time, an enemy would pull up to your gates with his army, surround your city, so that nothing could get in or out. In a short time, you'd be eating the horses, maybe the rats, and if things got bad enough, and you weren't entirely suicidal, you'd open the gates. Sometimes that would work out okay, sometimes not. Nowadays, countries wanting something from each other have more options. But one thing that's still around is the siege. We just call them sanctions. 
To discuss sanctions, their effectiveness, and where they are currently applied by the United States, we are joined by Ambassador Daniel Freed. Freed spent a lifetime working at the State Department, is an expert on sanctions, and is now at the Atlantic Council, a prominent Washington think tank. He's got a new paper coming out on November 17th with recommendations for the incoming administration. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Thank you. A lifetime. Well, 40 years. <laughs> for a lot of people, that is a lifetime. Service. Happily, not quite a lifetime. But <laughs> yeah, when I left the Foreign Service, <clears throat> I was the senior uh, Foreign Service officer in terms of length of service. That's because the uh, Trump people had fired so many of my um, colleagues. Yeah, that, that certainly made the news quite a bit. Well, talking just specifically about sanctions, we like to start off with some very basic stuff. And could you just tell us a bit about how they work and how they're targeted nowadays? Well, sanctions have been a, a tool of U.S. foreign policy since the administration of Thomas Jefferson, who thought that we could impose trade sanctions on the European powers and they would respect us more didn't work out so well. But sanctions in their current form took shape really after 9-11, when the Bush administration started looking at ways to dry up sources of financial flows to terrorist organizations. And it increased the sophistication of its sanctions operation and really beefed up the part of the Treasury Department, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, to conduct sanctions. And it got a lot, both the Bush administration and then the Obama administration got a lot smarter at imposing sanctions. Smart sanctions, you know, so-called as opposed to dumb sanctions, but they actually got pretty good at it. I was not, by the way, a sanctions person. Um, my last job in government was the State Department sanctions coordinator. That was the first time I had worked seriously on sanctions. And the Trump people not only abolished my office, but they scattered all of its people. So that, that office no longer exists. Maybe the Biden administration will put it back. Was there a justification given at the time for why it was broken apart and scattered? Or did it just happen? Oh, in the kind of willful chaos of the Trump administration, there wasn't a lot of thought given to a lot of things. This one was not Secretary Pompeo's idea. You remember Rex Tillerson was the first Secretary of State, and he made a lot of, frankly, ill-considered moves to straighten out the State Department organizational chart, you know, the, the org chart, and he abolished a lot of things that shouldn't have been abolished. It was just strange because, in fact, the Trump administration has continued the Obama policy of turning to sanctions as a one of the early, if not the first, foreign policy tool of choice. And to do that effectively, you need to give Treasury the resources it needs because they really run most of the financial sanctions. But you need you need State Department competence in sanctions, and my office was supposed to supply that. So go figure. That's a long list of Trump administration decisions where you're scratching your head and wondering what were they thinking. 
And by the way, I am not a partisan person. I worked in the Bush administration, in the Bush NSC for four years, and I was the Bush Assistant Secretary for Europe. So I've worked for Clinton, I've worked for Bush, worked for Obama. I'm not partisan. I just don't like dumb policy calls. I, I feel like in the next year or so, there's going to be a lot of venting of the spleen that happens on this show. <laughs> I just... It's just my 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 guess, I think. So vent away, we totally understand. Well, <laughs> Trust I, us. Sanctions are a legitimate and useful tool. They're not a cure-all. Okay? You don't snap your fingers, impose sanctions, and the other guy r- runs up the white flag. That doesn't happen. But they're a useful and legitimate tool. And what kills me is that the Trump administration sometimes, frankly, had the right idea on some sanctions policy. I'll give them credit. But they couldn't follow through consistently because sanctions have to be mar- married to a policy that otherwise makes sense and is consistently implemented. One of the rules of sanctions, and we can get into this, and it's, I'll tell you what I mean. One of the rules of sanctions is don't get greedy and don't get impatient, by which I mean don't think that you can demand everything and that because you've imposed sanctions, you'll get everything. And don't get impatient. Look, there is an enormous amount that you can accomplish in foreign affairs if you're not in a hurry to do it. You can get a lot done, but it's not going to happen usually according to the timeline you've put in your memo to the president or the secretary. Like, it's okay, sir, do this and it'll be done in time for your reelection. It doesn't work that way. But in the, if you are patient, you can often achieve a great deal. That's the lesson of the Cold War. We achieved our maximum objectives. It just took us 45 years to do it. Can you give me an example of uh, Trump administration sanctions that you thought were a good idea, but uh, we weren't, they weren't. Okay. Um, North Korea. All right. So let's roll back the tape to the Obama administration. Look, the Obama people outsourced North Korea sanctions policy to the UN Security Council. They had a series of Security Council resolutions and they negotiated with the Chinese. They did something. It, it wasn't an empty policy, but it wasn't it, it, it was not on a, a track commensurate with the speed of the developing North Korean nuclear and ballistic missile capacity. There was a gap. And the Obama people first sort of pretended that the, the Security Council resolution route would be sufficient. And then in their, the last six months, six, eight months, they realized it wasn't. And to the credit of the Obama people, they sort of gulped hard and finally gave my office, the sanctions office, license to start thinking about much heavier sanctions. Okay? And we did, working with Treasury. And by the way, the Treasury people all through Obama, including Obama political appointees at Treasury, were in this space for a long time. Okay? They wanted to do more. So we handed that over to the Trump people and said, look, you're right that we have that the Obama people didn't do enough on North Korea sanctions. And they said, well, we want, what do you think of maximum pressure? And we said, great, and here's your menu. Here's what you can actually do. And they started doing it. 
and it got the North Koreans' attention. And this made sense. It was a it was an, a, a Trump administration sanctions policy that actually made sense. And then what happened? Trump goes for the cheap win. He goes for this this flashy summit in Singapore with Kim Jong-un, and he agrees to a meeting. And then he agrees to some weak statement of general principles, which was actually weaker than things the North Koreans had previously agreed to and then broken. Like, what were they thinking? So they took a solid set of intensified sanctions, applied it. They were right, okay? The Trump people were right on maximum pressure. And then they squandered it all because Trump wants an easy win. Like, it just killed me. And then after it blows up, and and after it's clear that we've got nothing, they've lost maximum pressure. And maximum pressure is not easy because let's strip it away. What it really means is leaning on the Chinese to put more pressure on the North Koreans. Okay, if you're going to do that, and you can, you better be serious with the Chinese and not fight with the Chinese about everything. So what do you want from China? Well, the Trump administration, remember I said, don't be greedy and impatient. They wanted it all. They wanted it immediately. You're not going to get everything and you're not going to get it immediately. And no matter how much the president wants it or his, or his partisan staff, and it's not just Trump, all presidents are guilty of this to some extent, but they usually get smarter. Trump never did. No matter how much you want it, you're going to have to make choices. Can okay. we talk a little bit about what maximum pressure looks like versus minimum pressure. I mean, because those are the terms that I'm really familiar with, but I'm not as clear on exactly what steps we're talking about. I mean, I at one point read that Kim Jong-il's cognac was on the list of uh, sanctions (laughs) so that he allegedly couldn't get that and his Mercedes and, you know, things like that. But what what actually are we talking about? If you're talking about Maximum pressure, well, maximum pressure means different things in different cases, okay? But since you raised North Korea, it's a really good example. I remember the last, you know, when we, when we could finally get the Obama people who were doing North Korea policy to start thinking about maximum, you know, ramping up the sanctions. Simple principle, follow the money. What are North, don't go after you know, cognac or luxury imports. Come on. What are North Korea's major exports? Those are fisheries, textiles, coal, and labor, by which I mean they send out North Korean citizens to work in foreign factories, and 90% of their wages are sent home to the state. And, you know, it's so bad in North Korea, it's still a good deal for the North Korean workers. Okay, they still sign up for this stuff. So go after them. And that means going at, you know, going after the exports of textiles, fish, you know, fish, coal, labor means also going after the Chinese and getting them to knock it off. Now, I'm not putting it in diplomatic terms, but that's what it means. It also means going to the Russians. It means going after African countries, South Americans, wherever the the South, the, wherever the North Koreans are active, and it means sustained efforts. 
the Obama people did did some of this. They sure did. I mean, they really worked it in New York, you know, with skill and diligence. I'm not knocking them. But maximum pressure means going after the money, and it means making it clear to the Chinese that we're serious. But you then have to make, as I said earlier, you have to make the choices about what it is you really want. Look, there are two kinds of foreign policy problems. The problems you want to solve and the problems you say you want to solve. Those are two different things. And if you want to solve the North Korea problem, solve that means limiting, you know, in theory, eliminating the ballistic missile and nuclear capacity of North Korea. That's the deal. You know, what is it? What is it we're willing to do? What is it we're willing to put on the table? This is not easy, okay? There were a lot of smart people in both the Obama and Trump administrations who were trying to deal with this in an honest way. Trump got in the way, as I said. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for Biden. But at least he won't get in his... You won't have Biden going out and blowing up a perfectly reasonable policy because he's in... in a hurry for a cheap, a, a, a cheap victory that he hasn't earned. But it's also a matter of not just sales, but it's also, you know, what North Korea can sell, but it's also a matter of what North Korea can buy too, right? I mean, it's also a matter of what's coming in. And one thing that I found interesting yep. is that humanitarian aid seems to have continued at the same time sanctions have gotten tougher. I mean, is that is that common? I mean, I guess we no longer try to starve our enemies into submission, but it, it does seem interesting that, you know, we're helping and hurting at the same time. Well, okay, now you've touched on one of the the, the serious dilemmas of sanctions policy. In theory, you want all pluses and no minuses in your policy tools. You don't want risks. You want to pretend that there aren't any. It's never like that. There are always downsides. There are always risks. There are always choices. Sanctions are not supposed to include humanitarian assistance. They're supposed to have carve-outs for that. They're also not supposed to include sort of information, newspapers, media. They're supposed to give space for that. But it's humanitarian that's the toughest. That is especially a problem when it comes to Iran. Sanctions are going to hurt people. You know, in your press release, you can deny it or you can say it's all, you know, the other guy's fault. And you may be right. But you have to own the consequences of your policy. And then you have to be serious about facing that. And then you have to be serious about humanitarian carve-outs. You have to make it possible for food and medicine to get through. And I know the Treasury people, the the OFAC people who administer sanctions, wrestle with this all the time. All the time, it's not easy, and they do so in an honest way. There are going to be these kinds of consequences. Now, having said that, you can mitigate them. It's particularly tough with North Korea because of the the nature of the system and the brutality of the leadership. You have to recognize the problems. And then mitigate them as best you can. It doesn't seem to me an indictment of sanctions to recognize that. But you have to be serious. 
about working with humanitarian groups and getting that kind of dialogue going. So your language, your public statements about respecting humanitarian trade are more than are not just rhetoric. I'm not sure the Trump administration cares at all about that stuff. I know the Obama administration did. And I know that the uh, people at OFAC, at Treasury, who administer sanctions, do care about it. And it'll be a challenge for the Biden administration. You know, they're, they're going to have to look at, they'll look at sanctions policy and they'll wrestle with these things. And they will come up with solutions that are imperfect, but a lot better than nothing and not trying at all. This speaks to uh, one of the arguments that I often hear against sanctions, and you kind of touched on it there that it gives a political win to, or it can give a political win to the regimes that the sanctions are against. Specifically, I'm thinking about like Russia and the foodstuffs from Europe. You know, Putin has this big press conference where he dumps all the cheese and the bread and the, the fruit into the garbage and, and, and mows over it. And now the Russian cheese industry is supposedly booming, we're told. Are there instances where sanctions can backfire and create good press for these regimes that we don't, that the U.S. doesn't care for? And how do we, how do you mitigate that risk? That risk is there, but it's exaggerated. Now you raised Russia, so let's take it. I was deeply involved in the design of the Russia sanctions. They actually were reasonably effective. They have hurt the Russian economy without causing starvation. They have hurt Russian cronies. They have hurt economic growth. That's just what they were intended to do. The message was, if you start invading your neighbors, you're going to pay a price. They started a war. Now, the plowing under of cheese is not exactly, that was not exactly a win for the Putin administration. They look pretty dumb. That was perfectly good food and people knew it. The Russian economy has been stagnant for several years. And dissatisfaction in Russia is growing. Russians use the term stagnation to describe the current situation. Well, if you know Soviet history, you know that stagnation was also the term used at the end of the Soviet period before Gorbachev. Like, yeah, don't tell me that Putin is good. This is late, this is late decadent Putinism. That's what it feels like. But that's not me talking. Those are a lot of Russians talking. That's what they say. Sanctions have contributed to the sense in Russia that Putin has driven the country into a darkening and narrowing little tunnel. Oh, that light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, that's China. And when they get out of the tunnel, China will eat them alive. This Russia-Chinese alliance? Yeah, Russia's the junior partner in any such alliance, and they know it. That's not a comfortable situation for them. And, you know, the sanctions against Russia were intended to sharpen the choices, not just for Putin, but for the, you know, the Russian political class generally. You can engage in aggression, but we're going to push back. And in the, if you do that, you're not going to be able to enjoy the fruits of integration with the world economy. And these were not U.S. unilateral sanctions. The Europeans joined us. I mean, I, I know I was the, the Obama administration negotiator with Europe on the Russia sanctions, and it was actually a very productive set of negotiations. 
like the Europeans stepped up. And we were, thanks, frankly, to Tony Blinken, who was then Deputy Secretary of State, who's now close, you know, he's on the, the, the Biden team. I had the perfect negotiating position, which was basically freedom to do deals with the Europeans, handshake deals at the table with the Europeans. As long as I had treasury and commerce and everybody else alongside. So the Obama people handled that really well. They gave me what I need. We worked with the Europeans. The Europeans stepped up and we had a pretty much united front on sanctions against Putin's aggression, which Putin did not expect. He did not expect it. He thought the Europeans would cave. And the Trump people have been, shall we say, inconsistent on Russia policy, but they've generally continued the sanctions. You know, it's not been great, but they've done all right. I think Congress blocked them from removing the sanctions, which they might have done, but that's a whole other story. That's Trump and Russia policy. Uh, That's for another podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is also with Russia's where we have the Magnitsky Act. Right, which is supposed to target individuals in in, in a regime rather than the regime as a whole. What yeah. do you think about the Magnitsky Act, and do you think it's been effective? Well, okay, full disclosure, I had just started as sanctions coordinator when the Magnitsky Act passed, so I was the first person who tried to implement it. And it was such a hot potato, it was so nervous-making that the Russia hands at state were happy to have me do it. It actually was very effective because it enabled us to target individuals who were guilty of the persecution and eventually death of this lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who was killed because he'd uncovered corruption, which eventually turned out, as it turned out, out of Putin link. But it is, it also allowed us to go after other human rights abusers in Russia. It was so successful that Congress passed something called the Global Magnitsky Act, allowing for individual sanctions against people outside Russia for sort of the same kind of stuff, massive corruption or massive human rights abuses. And it actually is very clever because it allows you to go after individuals without declaring a sanctions regime against a country, which has its downsides. Global Magnitsky is something that the European Union is thinking of implementing and other individual countries are thinking of implementing. It's actually a pretty good tool. And I will say this, the Trump administration 
implemented the Global Magnitsky Act in a pretty capable fashion. And I'm going to give a shout out to a Trump administration former senior official, Sigal Mandelker, who is the Undersecretary of Treasury in charge of sanctions, and as uh, well as on other things, really believed in human rights sanctions as a legitimate tool. And she did, she and her people did a really good job, but I got to give her credit. Like somebody can, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive if you haven't, if you don't pay attention, that a senior official in the Trump administration would take a really strong and productive position on human rights and mean it. Like, really? But yes, yeah, she really did. I mean, she deserves, you know, I'm saying this because a lot of people who served in the Trump administration may feel tarnished. But some of them, she's one of them, or, you know, Chris Krebs, the former undersecretary of Homeland Security, is now in kind of the election protection business with DHS. He's been, a, he's been debunking, you know, disinformation about election fraud. I mean, he's another one. There are a lot of Trump administration political appointees who have done honorable work for the country. And I, you know, I'm no fan of the Trump administration, which should be obvious, but, you know, I do believe in government service and there are people who have done honorable service under what we can call difficult conditions. Anyway, so, so global Magnitsky to circle back was something the Trump administration implemented. It it could have done I think they would have done even better had the Trump administration been more consistent on human rights, but that's okay. They did honorably and they gave Biden, the Biden team, something to work with. So, well, I mean, the target of any sort of Magnitsky action would have to be pretty corrupt, right? I mean, (laughs) don't they have to have a large amount of wealth or? Yeah, that bar has to be high. You can't use it in a trivial way. And one of the reasons the Obama Treasury people were so wary of of Global Magnitsky Act was exactly this. They said it'll be used, that administrations will be pushed around by basically special interest human rights groups. And they were worried it would be used in a profligate or undisciplined manner. And I get that. I mean, it wasn't that the Obama Treasury people didn't have an argument. They did. But it turns out that maintaining a high bar is possible. So one of the basic questions I have, just to go really back to the basics, when a country uses sanctions, are how close are sanctions to war or as a tool of war? Do you see them as a precursor or something that can work by itself? They are a tool of what should be called economic statecraft, which is a, a, a fancy sounding word for putting pressure. Now, what are the other tools of economic statecraft? Well, technology controls. In other words, restrict exports of certain kinds of technologies. Like, do we really want to be sending high tech stuff to uh, China or Russia? You know, probably not. How about military technology? Mm -mm. All right, that's one tool of economic statecraft. Another tool of economic statecraft is, is transparency. Uncover the channels of dirty money. Like, really? Hidden LLC, you know, LLCs in Delaware with hidden owners? 
why shouldn't beneficial uh, ultimate beneficial owners of real estate or purchasers of high-end art or you know the owners of of fancy mysterious LLCs be known uncover this stuff stop allowing dirty actors to try to undermine our system in their day job and and then otherwise park their their money in uh, the US or financial system or the US or British real estate London real estate markets like what the hell those are tools of financial statecraft and i think that they are being i think the obama uh, people started it pause on the trump administration because obviously financial transparency is not big in the culture of this particular oval office but i think the the biden people will be heavy into into it they'll really be about anti-corruption that's what sanctions are part of it's not a tool of war it's a tool of financial statecraft and we should the united states with the europeans the canadians others you know singapore you know japan south korea should upgrade the financial rules to start pushing out the bad actors the corrupt actors the dirty money and you know open up the art market that's another channel for hiding you know laundering money you know transparency folks that you know sanctions are a tool like like that it goes after bad actors it, it has its limitations it's not easy sanctions and other tools of financial statecraft have to be married to policies that make sense you can't sanctions are not a policy you know when people used to come to me as sanctions coordinator at state department and say you know we want sanctions i'd say what are you trying to achieve what's your policy sometimes it couldn't answer the damn question and i you know tell them to think harder and come back but if you know what it is you want to achieve and it's practical you know our iran we haven't talked about iran much our the trump administration's iran policy see is we want everything right now the obama policy was we want a nuclear deal sanctions got us a nuclear deal they didn't fix all the problems with iran they shouldn't be expected to sanctions aren't going to fix anything but they can fix maybe something that's what i mean by wedded to a policy that makes sense what is it you're trying to achieve is it realistic can sanctions help and that's why you know that's what i did as the sanctions coordinator i'm not a technical sanctions person i learned a lot about it but i'm not one but i did did have a lot of experience in actual you know foreign policy what works I had some experience of what doesn't work too and sanctions can help if you know what you're doing so what are your recommendations for the incoming administration well read my paper coming out on november 17th a bunch of do's and don'ts but but y- you already know like don't get greedy don't get impatient give treasury and ofac the resources it needs i never worked there so it's not self-serving but the us taxpayer should know that's a really capable bureaucracy like, do you know what it's like being able to count 
on a piece of the U.S. government to deliver and get it right? You know, do you know what a relief that was? If, if OFAC said, we can do this, they could do it. If they said, this will work, it pretty much would work, which meant when they said, mm, this is dumb, I tended to believe them. They're highly competent, but they're under-resourced. Put people there. Give them the, re- the resources. And work with other countries. Unilateral sanctions are costly. The Europeans have discovered that sanctions can be a useful tool. Work with them. And, you know, don't start thinking with sanctions or anything else that you can snap your fingers and the Europeans will fall in line. That's not how it works, not how it should work. Come up with a consensus. Push it forward. Work the politics in Europe on sanctions or anything else. And then keep your, keep your word. Do a handshake deal and keep the deal. And if you get the Europeans on board, U.S. and Europe, you'll pretty much carry the G7. You know, that means the, the Japanese come on board and the Canadians. You do that, you have the high ground in the world financial system. And you haven't wasted a lot of American political capital. If you do it alone and lean on people, you can get away with it, but you're going to piss people off, and that is going to weaken your overall policy objective. I'm not saying never do unilateral, but that's that's your last choice. Anyway, the you know I, I the paper I wrote distilled, distills that gives a lot of case studies, but it follows the discussions we've been having, you know, because that's what goes on. You know, that, those are the real issues. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.